the robot-computer-human interface. The first ArcFusion dinner in San Francisco was quite a do. Its producers, journalists David Ewing Duncan and Stephen Petranek, took over a theater, laid out an enormous table in the shape of an X, theatrically lit the whole place, and invited the weirdest and most interesting people they knew to talk about human evolution. Attendees were given one of five colored name tags, depending on how they answered a multiple-choice question. How far would you go to enhance yourself if these technologies were possible? 1. Minimal enhancement as my knees and organs age. Otherwise, I'm fine the way I am. 2. Take a pill daily that increases your concentration by 25% and doubles your strength by 50%. 3. Implant stem cells in your brain that have been genetically modified to make you quicker and smarter. 4. Replace your legs and arms now with prosthetics that are better than flesh and blood, more durable and stronger. 5. Transfer your mind into a durable robot or into a virtual reality world that will last for centuries or longer. So, what would be your answer? As dinner progressed from foraged nettle soup through organic Aztec chocolates, the debate got pretty heated. Robots and mechanical enhancements can be a Rorschach test reflecting fundamental divergence of opinion on how far to enhance, how long to live, and whether to create paths toward broad human speciation. Can a human be a human with consciousness enhanced and without much of a physical body? We may someday be able to, and want to, store a part of our consciousness outside the brain. Because robotic design is improving fast, humans are increasingly comfortable with various implants, and soon we may wish to travel very, very long distances. There is still much deserved skepticism. Only one-fifth of the ARC Dinner's participants chose the most radical option on the questionnaire. Robot fusion, partial immortality. Endless waiting for useful everyday robots has made many people wary of the promises of robotics. Not surprising, since the Jetsons so long ago showcased Rosie, the perfect maid. Lost in Space told us robots could warn us of any impending dangers. Star Wars made us wish we had C-3PO as a buddy. And then the Terminator showed up. Suddenly, robots didn't seem so cuddly anymore. And meanwhile, back in the present, the only semi-robotic thing that seems to work somewhat well is a Roomba. Most of us don't yet think of robots as particularly relevant or real. But as occurred with iGEM, many high school and college kids don't really care about what we think we know, so they are busily building a present far different from what we think exists. Throughout the 2013-14 school year, more than 350,000 kids figured out how to build robots that could pick up and shoot large beach balls. These are not pre-made, pre-designed, off-the-shelf machines. They were built from scratch, without instructions, 
for a very specific challenge that changes yearly. These kids also had to recruit 64,000 adult mentors and 3,500 corporate sponsors. In typical engineer nerd fashion, the founder of this contest, Dean Kamen, came up with a tremendously catchy name for the competition. For Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology, which he then fortunately shortened into First Robotics. The contest became a movement and an ethos, a mechanical educational cult, reflecting Cayman's don't-tell-me-why-you-can't-do-it attitude. After all, Cayman himself conceived 440 patents, including the Segway, a wheelchair that climbs stairs, and diverse medical devices, including most of the insulin pumps currently on the market. Robotics is one of the few major college competitions where almost all participants can and do go pro. First kids are ten times more likely than other college students to land an internship at a company. And after almost a quarter century of first contests, literally millions of adults now feel very comfortable designing and coexisting with robots. Many have PhDs and are already beginning to change our relationship interface, not only with robots, but also, in some cases, with the human body itself. So, when the background conversation during the 2014 first finals turned to the question, which will be the first event in professional sports where robots will beat athletes, it seemed wise to pay attention. It's one thing for robots, computers, to win at chess. But imagine a world in which a pro team takes on a robotic tennis, golf, soccer, hockey, or basketball team and loses, something that will likely occur within the next decade or two. The level of design, strategy, and adaptability required for such feats goes way, way beyond a Roomba. And ironically, in a few decades, many of the players on the human team will already be mechanically enhanced with titanium hips and elbows and perhaps eye and brain implants. Already, in field after field, robots are beginning to demonstrate extraordinary skills. No human pilot shows greater talent than one who consistently lands on a carrier at night. The runway is moving, forward, sideways, and up and down, in irregular swells, in pitch darkness. The task is so hard that pilots' heart rates can exceed those of the same pilots during air combat. Yet, on July 10, 2013, the last air robot drone deniers were stunned into silence as they witnessed large unmanned drones execute landing after landing at sea. To see automated machines performing the task better than the best of the best humans represents a critical Rubicon. Robots are here, even if we don't realize it yet. Typically, by the time robots are tested, approved, and deployed in critical functions, they perform any given task at least an order of magnitude better than average humans. Twice as many aircraft accidents are now due to pilot error as opposed to mechanical or autopilot failure.
Automation and human-robot coexistence have driven the chances of dying on a commercial flight down to 1 in 45 million. Pilots will touch the controls less and less, until eventually a flight becomes like the trains one takes from terminal to terminal in an airport, driverless. Robotic cars will soon follow planes because over-optimistic, unaware, and incompetent make a bad combination behind the wheel of any automobile. Yet 93% of U.S. drivers judge themselves better than average. This disparity is accentuated by the Dunning-Kruger effect. The most incompetent among us are also the ones who most tend to overestimate their abilities. To help some of these delusional folks, car designers are incorporating more and more computers and robotics into new models, including collision avoidance, self-parking, lane maintenance, and adaptive cruise control. This will somewhat reduce the chances that the loudmouth cutting you off while talking on the phone and eating a hamburger will make you yet another roadkill statistic. As we begin to realize just how good driverless cars are, the anachronism will be a human driver. Some early adopters, likely those with teenage kids or elderly parents, will breathe a sigh of relief, as will many soccer moms and Wall Street Journal-reading commuters. But some will feel their liberty compromised, that driving constitutes an essential and permanent freedom. Perhaps one way to think about this inevitable transition is to mentally go back five or six generations. Some of our ancestors would be outraged and furious that their lazy descendants quit teaching their kids to travel long distances on horses. Within decades, driving a car may be a fanciful novelty. Recreation for those who can afford the extra insurance required for a human driver. One very unfortunate consequence of autonomous vehicles, besides having everything moving at a constant speed, predictably, with seamless merging and far fewer traffic jams, will be the job losses for many ambulance-chasing lawyers. We will see fewer billboards on highways with advertisements like, Injured? Call Bobby Joe right now to get your payment in court. Collision shops would also suffer, insurance rates would go down, and drunk drivers would fade away into the back seat. Does this mean no more accidents, ever? No. But as occurred in aviation, accidents will be ever-diminishing. No distracting texting or phone calls, fewer fender benders, many fewer careless and distracted driver mistakes. Robots mean almost every driver will be average, and the average will be very high and improving all the time. As occurs in planes, there will still be some mechanical failures and software misfires in cars, but overall road traffic safety will begin to converge with air traffic safety, a good thing, given that flying has a fatality rate of 0.003 per 100 million miles while the automobile death rate is 20,333% higher, 0.61 per 100 million miles. Why is this relevant to overall human evolution? 
because we are gradually getting very, very used to living side by side with robots, needing them, improving them, holding them in our hands, and even implanting them. Three million Americans are alive today because of an internalized, body-hybridized robotic device we call a pacemaker. We not only tolerate robots, we increasingly demand them. And the graduates of FIRST and of many other programs are designing more and more robots that are not just useful, but essential. There is increasing need and pressure to interface with, use, and integrate robots into our daily lives internally and externally. Short-term, what we do daily, for how long, and with whom, is likely to change in a similar way to how mechanized agriculture changed the habits, landscape, and bodyscape of millions. Abrupt changes in physical labor patterns, physical abilities that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years that are suddenly useless, can have real consequences. Already it's true that eight, ten, or more hours at a desk significantly increases mortality from all causes, particularly heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Not moving even has reproductive consequences. Men who watch more than 20 hours of TV per week have half the sperm count of those who do not watch TV. And if you exercise at least 15 hours per week, your sperm count is 73% higher than that of couch potatoes. Meanwhile, some gyms in Florida have installed short escalators leading up to their front doors. Gradually, we may demand that robotics be a part of our bodies. When MIT professor of engineering Hugh Hare enters a room, he bounces. He has the strength, grace, and agility of an extreme rock climber. So unless he is wearing shorts, most people don't realize he froze off both of his legs during a winter climb. What started out as an effort to help the handicapped has led to ever more competitive physical alternatives. Hare still climbs, using the feet, ankles, and calves he designed in his lab, which allow him to climb routes few others can touch. And a year after the Boston Marathon bombing, Hare created a completely new and radically redesigned leg for a professional ballroom dancer and had her dancing on stage at TED. The large and clumsy cones our great-grandparents used to improve their hearing gradually morphed into the large boxes our grandparents wore above their ears, which emitted high-pitched whines during dinners and phone conversations. Now our parents wear almost invisible and quite accurate hearing aids, and even the deaf now have cochlear implants with 22 channels that allow almost full hearing in English. This is not sufficient for tonal languages like Mandarin, and certainly not for music, which involves hundreds of channels. As implants continue to improve, the deaf will likely end up with more sensitive, focused, tunable hearing than normal hearing people. Beyond just music, some implants could enable one to hear sounds and tones currently audible only to dolphins or bats. Eventually, one might choose to go beyond bridging for the injured and into outright sensory enhancement. Perhaps symphony orchestras of the future will hire only the hearing enhanced, and audiences 
may be more discerning. Sound too far-fetched? Some handicapped runners and jumpers face accusations that they are too good, overly enhanced, and should be barred from competing against normal humans. For years, no one paid much attention, except to express sympathy and support, to Marcus Rem's efforts to compete against the able-bodied in long jump. Until, after years of training and effort, and thousands of jumps using his one normal and one prosthetic leg, he won the German Nationals, 2014. Within 24 hours, the sports authorities' reaction turned to fear, and they immediately dropped him from the squad going into the European Championships. At various stages in life for different professions, human-robotic interfaces will become increasingly common. The same type of appendages, actuators, enhancers, and interfaces that hair designs for the handicap may be used by the able-bodied. Humans can get used to enhancements and begin to take them for granted very quickly. In 2013, Hare placed an external exoskeleton over soldiers' calves and boots that made it easier for them to walk carrying heavy packs for a couple of hours. Thereafter, the soldiers found it very hard to go back to walking without the enhancers, most reported feeling sluggish and clumsy without the apparatus. Assisted walking is an especially easy enhancement to accept because, by nature, humans do not run on four legs in a stable manner. Instead, they are continuously adjusting their balance as two legs take them through continuous, controlled forward crashes while leaving their arms free for other tasks. And while on the subject, you may want to review Daniel Lieberman's research on why pregnant women don't tip over and other fascinating paradoxes of the human body. Eventually, we will likely see a gradual mental and physical acceptance of hybridized human-mechanical interfaces. When one military veteran who had lost both arms showed up in Dean Kamen's workshop, the team built the injured soldier two new arms that were so accurately controlled he could pick up grapes without breaking them and then feed himself a soft-boiled egg. His wife was crying nearby and said it was the first time her husband had been able to feed himself in years. But the most interesting part of this enhancement is that the arms were controlled by the veteran's thoughts, not by his muscles. The human mechanical interface was wired through the brain, not through muscle actions. Hugh Hare now wants to take this integration one step further by growing muscles and nerves around the artificial legs he creates so there is no real conscious difference in how one walks and runs whether the leg is natural or not. Strange coalitions are rapidly advancing the machine-human interface. Groups like Humanity Plus coalesce a like-minded community of top academics, Wild West do-it-yourself biohackers, Singularity University entrepreneurs, transhumanist ethicists, anti-aging activists, and extreme engineers. Their overall objective aims to change, redesign, push, prod, and pull the human body in various ways so as to improve it. Short-term, they aim to fight aging and ever-deteriorating bodies. 
long-term, they are far more ambitious and seek to integrate human brains and nervous systems with various mechanical enhancements. They argue that a far better alternative to cloning or increasing human longevity is to integrate our water and carbon-based life form with much longer-lasting materials. An ultimate step in unnatural selection? Perhaps an ethical question or two? Eugenics, a breeding science that purported to select and preserve desirable human traits, was adopted by Hitler. But it was not German-bred and born. It was birthed by Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, in his book Hereditary Genius. Then it was lovingly nurtured at Stanford University, Cold Spring Harbor, and the Carnegie Institution. In Indiana, in 1907, way before the Nazis, eugenicist Harry Laughlin wrote up model laws for sterilization of the inferior and those misfit to reproduce. Soon, 33 U.S. states were making sure that thousands of people they considered socially inadequate, plus those who were maintained wholly or partly by public expense, had no kids. State governments could and did take control of the bodies and reproductive organs of anyone they deemed feeble-minded, insane, criminalistic, epileptic, inebriate, diseased, blind, deaf, deformed, and dependent. And for good measure, they also threw in orphans, ne'er-do-wells, tramps, the homeless, and paupers. The Nazis thanked Laughlin with an honorary Ph.D. for the Science of Social Cleansing in 1936, and then celebrated his accomplishments by sterilizing 350,000 people. Despite all evidence of harm, many within the United States didn't learn from this history, and they continued sterilizing the mentally handicapped through the 1970s. Until 1977, in South Carolina, social workers were officially deputized to decide whether a person should ever be permitted to have children. The last forced sterilization in the United States? Oregon, 1981. Because billions of people have been judged, oppressed, or categorized as superior or inferior based on skin color, income, gender, national origin, and so on, the default position taken by most geneticists is, we are all equal, period. Understandably, there is enormous aversion, anger, and fear about reopening a discussion on any topic having to do with genetic differences between peoples. Touching this debate while aspiring to tenure is academic suicide. And after spending billions of dollars studying the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomics research, the National Human Genome Research Project rarely addresses eugenics or the issues involved. Of the 20 total times the topic comes up on genome.gov, it's often addressed with bromides about how we should learn from the past and avoid making the same mistakes. Only the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory website takes the issue head-on and unflinchingly.
showing images and rationales used by their past academic superstars for obscene outcomes. But fear of controversy means we avoid the underlying issue, while databases catalog more and more differences. There are some very specific gene variations among people. Sometimes these variants have to do with sex, race, ethnicity, family background, and other controversial topics. So when they arise, they are often explained away or ignored. Meanwhile, the evidence accumulates. Start with a politically fraught concept. Men and women are not equal. Few academics would dare take a position like that in public, which is one of the reasons biologist David Page isn't just smart, but also quite brave. As director of the Whitehead Institute, his aim is to build the best research genetics faculty in the world. Along the way, with humor, guts, and smarts, he skewers sacred cows, including researching why men and women get diseases at different rates. There are obvious answers for things like testicular and ovarian cancer, but what intrigued Page is how many non-sex organ-related diseases affect men and women very differently. Yes, men and women get lung cancer and heart disease in different proportions because of different lifestyle habits. But how about things like lupus, multiple sclerosis, heart disease, Parkinson's, autism, schizophrenia, and stroke? Sometimes particular diseases affect women five times more often than men. Could there be fundamental differences in how men's and women's bodies and immune systems deal with disease? If we take Paige's questions seriously and leave dramatic gender bias, how dare you ask these questions denunciations aside, then we must modify research significantly. Should early clinical trials for a particular medicine distinguish between male and female cohorts in mice? We know women and men react differently to many drugs. Low-dose aspirin and some insomnia drugs, for example, should be administered very differently. And yet, even for diseases that disproportionately affect women, like depression, neuroscientists studied 5.5 male rats for every female. Pharmacologists used the ratio 5 to 1. What about the gender of basic human cells in petri dishes that are used in the earliest stages of drug development. We know that in the brain, male neurons pay more attention to excitatory neurotransmitters, and female neurons are more sensitive to the type of stimulation that leads to programmed cell death. Yet most studies ignore whether the original cell line is male or female. Once one really considers sex differences, Real consequences follow the potentially offensive themes raised by Page and a small number of others. For example, should we treat all peoples, races, blood types, and sexes equally? Before we enter these thorny canyons, let's begin with one fact. Our species is relatively new, and because we outcompeted our closest hominin relatives, we are a remarkably monocultured group. A group of West African chimps has more genetic diversity within it 
than do our billions of Facebook friends. Even the genetic elements that allow diversity within pluripotent stem cells, those that allow a species to rapidly adopt and adapt, are more prevalent in chimps and bonobos than in humans. But sometimes small differences count and, if recognized, can improve a group's chances of a healthy and satisfying life. Yet the majority of the scientific research community wants nothing to do with these questions, period. Some argue that all studies based on race or IQ should simply be banned. A poll taken among the readers of Nature magazine, an educated, science-savvy audience, showed that, were it up to them, only 5% would allow studies linking genes and violence. Only 6% would allow studies on sex and genes. Only 8% approve of carrying out any type of genetic study tied to intelligence. And only 9% would support a study based on race. Might one say there is a strong, predisposed research bias? Yet uncomfortable differences keep popping up in unexpected places. Multiple statins reduce blood pressure. One of these statins works better than others for some members of the African-American population. One blood clotting agent happens to be far less effective for African-Americans than for whites, in part because they express higher levels of phosphatidylcholine transfer protein, PCPT, in their blood. And one of the reasons for higher incidence of cancer and cardiovascular diseases among African-Americans may be low vitamin D. The list goes on. Some Hispanics and Latin Americans may be more susceptible to certain diseases like diabetes. Even within these populations, there's huge variation. The incidence of diabetes is twice as high in Mexico as in Chile and Brazil. Just as we need to understand specific environments better, we also need to focus on differential gene expression. African Americans ages 45 to 64 are two and a half times as likely to die of heart attacks as their white counterparts. Researchers consider diet, access to health care, and exercise among potential culprits. But one company, Nitromed, looked at its initial clinical trial data and identified another factor. They had tried out their new medicine on a broad, random population, and it rarely worked well. However, it did appear to help one subset of the population, African Americans. Nitromed ran a new trial using only black patients. While quite controversial, the results were compelling enough that the trial was stopped early, and in June 2005, the FDA approved the first race-specific drug after an all-black clinical trial found that patients taking Bidal experienced a 39% reduction in the rate of first hospitalization for heart failure and a 43% increase in survival rates. Despite these positive, life-saving results, the company soon suffered brutal attacks by physician, research, and civil rights groups. The drug flopped. The company tanked. The lesson learned? Even if you can segment and cure a large group of people. Don't go there. 
ideology and fear trump results. Graduate school constantly reminds aspiring PhDs that correlation is not causation. The brutal knife of true, true, but unrelated has sunk many a research presentation. But when unexpected correlations do exist, even if they are imperfect, it would seem appropriate to take advantage of information that might benefit the well-being of specific individuals or groups. Perhaps a researcher could be supported in attempts to delve deeper into the scientific basis of the correlation between skin color and other uncomfortable topics, differences, in order to engineer a therapeutic response. Clinical trials could be designed to evaluate various subgroups that suffer disproportionate side effects, but there is currently not much incentive to do this. Focusing on differences can explode in controversy and reduce market share. Few academics are willing to tread into such minefields. There are even explicit warnings in top science magazines telling you how to act and think if you dare enter these debates. It is far easier to get a grant, generate outrage, and put on a white hat if you point out the multiple and real disparities in access to health care by race, income, and region than to study whether there might be any biological differences among groups and dare attempt to differentiate treatments. In our egalitarian times, those hunting for and identifying certain types of genetic differences are rarely celebrated or rewarded. Genetic engineer Bruce Lahn published a couple of very carefully worded studies in Science. They showed two gene variants that affect brain size commonly appear in Europeans, but not Africans. Other studies confirmed these results. Nevertheless, Lon's study unleashed a firestorm of debate and criticism for daring suggest that human evolution continues and varies. The University of Utah's Gregory Cochran argued that some specific African populations mutated more slowly than other subgroups because they were isolated, did not have to adapt to varying climates, urbanized slowly, and focused on hunting and gathering. Needless to say, Cochrane too, was crucified by fellow academics and by the media. But despite criticism, fury, and misinterpretation, researchers continue to discover gene variants. They've found that African Americans are four times more likely to suffer from end-stage kidney disease, perhaps because of the high prevalence of a noxious APOL1 gene variant. This same variant provides some protection against sleeping sickness, which makes sense in evolutionary terms, carrying a gene mutation that enhances survival and reproduction in places where a mosquito-transmitted disease prevailed, and the evolutionary fact that it also causes kidney failure later in life was irrelevant to their ancestors, who had lived long enough to reproduce. Lon still, cautiously, focuses on recognizing human diversity and has developed three key arguments. Promoting biological sameness in humans is illogical, possibly even dangerous. 
Ignoring the possibility of group diversity is poor science and poor medicine. And a robust moral position embraces diversity as one of humanity's great assets. Out of fear that we have already lost crucial human genomic data, in 1991, Dr. Luigi Luca Cavalli-Sforza suggested that researchers cast a net as wide as possible in collecting human DNA so that the Human Genome Project would reflect all of humanity. He explicitly included various native tribes and isolated groups. Soon, he was being pilloried for exploitation and stealing, instead of being celebrated for preserving what was rapidly assimilating and disappearing. Today, as we sequence, release, and analyze tens of thousands of human genome files, many scientists will compare gene patterns, variants, alleles to diseases and outcomes. But there are few acceptable frameworks or forums in which to present and discuss the differential results. We leave such a vacuum of information that when masses of data do become available, there won't be a scientifically and ethically sound framework with which to discuss or address the implications, allowing demagogues freedom to interpret the new data and use statistics to suit their own agendas. And tragically, we may seal off directions of inquiry that could improve treatments and medicines, enabling them to get to the right patient at the right time in the right dose. Technically life, technically death. The survival rates of prematurely born infants today have more to do with human desires, discoveries, and technology than with natural selection. In Darwin's world, very few preemie babies survived. In the United States, between 1990 and 2006, the number of late preemies increased by 20%. Survival has increased at a staggering rate, and not just in the Anglo-European world. Cutter's rate of neonatal mortality fell 87% between 1975 and 2011. Its preemie mortality rate fell 91%. Granted, Cutter's is an extreme case fueled by oil and gas discoveries and a rapid wealth increase. But in 2010, about 11% of all worldwide births were preemies, less than 37 weeks. That's 15 million people in one year. The extremely young and fragile sometimes survive, including 17% of babies who weighed just over 2 pounds and are in the womb for only 23 weeks. Sometimes even 22-week-olds, a full 18 weeks before term, survive. Without extreme human intervention, all of these children would die. So, from an evolutionary perspective, preemie survival rates are a great example of our unnatural, domesticated world, a world where human-driven selection dominates. Saving so many, so young, is a blessing, but it can also have serious long-term consequences. In the UK, only one in five early preemies end up with normal health. 
The rest suffer moderate to severe mental and cognitive impairment by age six. Even babies born one to three weeks short of term suffer more respiratory distress, hospitalizations, medical costs, and first-year mortality. Preemies typically need expensive care. In Finland, health care costs for very preemie babies can be 4.4 times more than the cost of caring for full-term births in the fifth year of life. There are also consequences for the couple. One study in the Netherlands determined that caring for seriously premature babies doubled the chances of a marriage dissolving and significantly increased the chances of becoming poor, even within a society with a large and generous social safety net. We continue to alter and, most believe, improve upon the traditional brutal weeding out of humans. We continue to lessen the constraints on survival of the fittest dictated by natural selection. Instead, we select and explicitly advocate for the survival of as many humans as possible, including some of the most varied and vulnerable. We built our laws, moral codes, teachings, and institutions to fulfill this ideal. The core idea, the operating principle, is no longer single-minded optimization and perfection, but variety and multiculturalism. This is a human-driven desire and trait, not one traditionally practiced by the sharp knife of natural evolution. While completely against the principles of nature as described by Darwin, what we are doing is profoundly humane. It is our choice, our desire, our idea of what our population should look like and reflect that guides who survives and reproduces. And we have become all the better for this series of choices, unnatural and costly as they may be. The extreme effects of unnatural selection, both good and bad, are also ever more apparent at the end of life. Thanks to cholesterol-lowering medications, hip replacements, and new knees, a healthy gramps can be around to coach his grandkids far longer. Many people enjoy a full decade or two or three of travel, swimming, cycling, or running that would have been inconceivable for their own grandparents, who saw no point in saving for retirement. But sometimes, practicing unnatural selection means we keep loved ones alive long after the body would have given up on its own. Yes, it's great to have grandpa and grandma around for a decade more, but sometimes we treat our elders in ways we would never dare treat our dogs. Many pet owners have gone through the absolutely wrenching experience of putting a long-term member of the family, usually a beloved dog or cat, to sleep. Although upsetting for the family, it's not a brutal experience for the pet, who quickly falls into a coma and dies peacefully almost immediately thereafter, suffering over. Only the seriously disturbed would dream of forcing a dog to crawl around for years in ever more pain, and then artificially extending his life even further so he could suffer some more, and then intervening in more and more extreme ways such that his life and suffering 
continue on though there is no hope of recovery. And yet, that's often what we do with Grandma. At some point, we almost all will likely say, I want to go quick, in my sleep, without pain. But today, at the end stage of many diseases, where there is constant deterioration and no real hope of recovery, death doesn't come peacefully in one's sleep. Rather, it's prolonged, with brutal suffering punctuated by breakout pain, pain that cannot be stopped or controlled by most existing medications. Even then, many families and doctors seem congenitally indisposed to recognize the natural end of life. Many hospitals, seemingly incentivized to increase their revenue by doing everything possible, whether it really helps the patient or not, continue an undignified assault on the body, bringing an agonizing onslaught of useless procedures and stacking up bills for naught. We spend 17% of the $550 billion annual Medicare budget on the last year of life and much of this spending does not lead to good or peaceful deaths. Doctors know this, though they readily point out that no one is ever really certain when a patient's final 12 months actually begin. While doctors often don't talk to their patients about end-of-life options, they do know what they want for themselves. 64% of U.S. doctors have written out explicit instructions for their own end-of-life care. The vast majority want pain meds, but would refuse CPR, ventilation, dialysis, or chemo. But when it comes to patients, despite all the evidence, doctors and families usually overestimate the chances of making someone healthy again or being able to provide a comfortable and dignified end so doctors are often doing things for their patients and their families that they would never do for themselves because they have seen firsthand what the effects are, what it costs both personally and financially, and what the outcome is. As we deploy ever more extreme technologies that keep bodies alive unnaturally, a growing percentage of the population is asking for death with dignity. Whereas 36% supported a physician ending a patient's life by some painless means in 1950. In 2006, this concept had 69% support. Ironically, the same types of culture wars fought over birth control and abortion are also playing out at the end of life, and even the words ring similar. The motto used by Compassion and Choices, a death with dignity organization, states, My life, my death, my choice. Their argument is that everyone should be free to follow their own religious and moral beliefs, but one should not have the right to force their beliefs on other mentally competent adults who want death with dignity. The pro-choice controversy, both at the beginning and at the end of life, tragically intermingled in November 2013 when Marlise Munoz collapsed and her brain died. Being a paramedic, knowing such things can occur, she had previously prepared a living will. Her husband knew, and her lawyer knew, that she did not want to be kept alive artificially. Munoz, of all people, 
knew what she was doing and asking for, having witnessed firsthand the consequences and costs of extreme resuscitation measures, as had her husband, also a paramedic and firefighter. Both were competent adults with clear directives. But Munoz's accident happened in Texas, and, as it turns out, in Texas, others can snatch control of your body, especially if you are pregnant. And Munoz was. The hospital continued to keep Munoz artificially alive against her own and her family's explicit wishes. Her fetus, 14 weeks old, had likely already suffered irreparable brain damage because the mother's pulmonary embolism meant neither Munoz nor the fetus got any oxygen for close to 20 minutes. No matter. The operative words were pregnant mother, not viable child. Against Munoz's will, her baby was forced to remain in a brain-dead incubator for 26 weeks while the hospital was sued for the cruel and obscene mutilation of a corpse, until the court finally recognized that the baby had malformed and that the mother should be taken off life support. Then, the John Peter Smith Hospital thought it would be a good idea to send Mr. Munoz a bill for over $300,000 to pay for unwanted and unsought procedures. Just to add insult to injury, some major Texas gubernatorial candidates began to bleat that they should tighten their laws so this could never happen again. With the lieutenant governor leading the charge, these men were seeking to use their power to ensure that no woman is ever taken off life support for any reason if she is pregnant. Too much medical technology meets too little common sense with a huge dash of testosterone arrogance. Moving away from nature, deciding for ourselves when it is time to reproduce, survive, or die, can have significant consequences. Sometimes there's a major clash between what we do and what we should do, or between what's natural and what's possible. Unnatural selection at both ends of the life spectrum can lead to choices none of us would want to face, but that we will need to openly discuss, because others are often deciding who lives and for how long, even when we have made a different decision. Meanwhile, more and more bodies of the very young and very old are warehoused in hospitals in completely unnatural states. Trust whom? The questions driven by and the powers granted by our increasing ability to decode, encode, and engineer life forms will challenge religions, corporations, and governments. Each will seek to earn our trust and help guide us as we face some thorny issues. In turn, each of these core institutions will also need to adapt and evolve existing dogma. Each will have to re-earn its legitimacy to provide guidance on some truly complex options and dilemmas. Globally, when faced with the most basic existential life questions and moral dilemmas, four out of every five people turn to priests for answers. Many practitioners of religion argue that the answers are already there, 
that beliefs and scriptures came directly from the wisdom of a particular God, which implies an absolute and unchanging word and truth. But few successful religions are unchanging doctrines. The smart ones, those that survive a long time, evolve. Abraham's words speciated into Christianity, modern Judaism, and Islam. Within each of these branches, there exists a great deal of further subspeciation. Christianity begat Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. Eventually, each of these branches in turn subspeciated. Roman Catholics can follow Jesuits, Dominicans, Franciscans, and many other Cassocks. A few centuries later, a large branch of heretic Protestants also began to subspeciate. Now there are at least 42 varieties of Baptists. The process continues with some Catholics opting to cluster an Opus Dei, the Legionaries, and, as of 2004, the Sisters Adorers of the Royal Heart of Jesus Christ Sovereign Priest. A similar process occurred with Judaism, speciating into Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Hasid, and Kabbalah and again with Islam branching into Sunni, Shia, Ibadi, Sufi, Ahmadiyya. The emergence of a new religion or a major branch typically begins with a divine intervention, Abraham bringing down the Word, God sending his only Son, Allah speaking to the Prophet Muhammad. Soon thereafter, the interpretation and application of God's commandments becomes a long and constant process of adapting to changing political, ethical, and moral beliefs, as well as scientific discoveries. Good process. Otherwise, if we were to take the literal words of the Bible to heart, we would now be painfully and slowly killing all stubborn and rebellious sons, all who practice premarital sex, those who touch Mount Sinai, and anyone who curses. Morals and ethics have to adapt to changing circumstances. For example, why might Americans and Europeans react so differently to extramarital affairs? In Europe, for a significant portion of the 20th century, they were almost blasé about them, while in the United States, they often led to divorce. At least part of the answer may be the much higher numbers of young European men killed during the two world wars. In 1917 in England, the senior mistress of the Bournemouth High School for Girls told her sixth form class that only one in ten could ever hope to find a man to marry. With few eligible men available after two great wars, the reduced probability that women would have an exclusive, age-appropriate partner changed society's understanding of what was acceptable. In early Islam, during periods of enormous violence, multiple wives may have been a way for men to rapidly spread the religion and ensure powerful allies. Necessity may be the mother of invention, but it can also be the mother of acceptance. Religions provide a common belief and rules system for large populations to organize behaviors and attitudes, and they attempt to improve their followers' fates. A people's health can suddenly improve, even in the midst of plagues and epidemics, because they adopt a new religion 
and new customs that require washing hands, face, and feet five times a day. Both Muslims and Jews, in an era of trichinosis and swine flu, decreed pork dirty and to be avoided. Christians often drank wine instead of contaminated water during times of little sanitation. Many of these customs and rules led to each population feeling a little more protected vis-à-vis its unclean heathen neighbors. Increasingly, when religious beliefs conflict directly with new science, there has to be some evolution in belief, or at least part of that faith may erode. As the cheeky astrophysicist and science popularizer Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to say, science is true whether you believe in it or not. When there is a clear geological, fossil, and molecular biology trail leading back billions of years, it gets ever harder to argue that the world is but 7,000 years old. Not that many don't try to argue this very thing, but it puts them in conflict with overwhelming and mounting evidence, which is precisely the type of behavior that eventually leads to educated people abandoning irrelevant and outdated religions. After all, most gods, most religions, have gone extinct. Much of what the world so reverently worships is but a few thousand years old. As we face truly difficult choices on reproduction, altering humans, cloning, longevity, speciation, and myriad other challenges created by non-random mutations, some religions will adapt, learn, and remain relevant guides and actors. Others will ossify in fear and lack of knowledge and understanding. What is clear is that life sciences can and will fundamentally challenge, transform, and evolve many a religion. So how will increasingly secular societies cope with the tremendous conundrums and opportunities presented by our newfound abilities to guide evolution? Many will still turn to their pastors for guidance. Many others, who absorbed and incorporated many of the core beliefs common to various religions and secularized them, will no longer turn to a higher power to decide, but they will debate and re-examine their moral codes with their friends and community. Life science forces us to think about complex issues, including reincarnation, extreme longevity, and self-stored versus outside-stored memories. As we grow to realize how many beliefs and assumptions are about to be challenged by the reality of what we can do, it is not just religions that will be challenged. Other big institutions are also under tremendous pressure to answer, lead, explain, and control powerful technologies. One group desperate to earn your trust and your dollars is composed of corporations. Many individuals instinctively react, I would never ever trust any corporation with my data. Their answer? You already do. There is good reason to worry. Our genome, health, lifestyle, and habitual data are among the most personal stuff we have. How many calories you consume, with whom, and when, whether you exercise or not, what medicines you take, how intimate you are with someone else. 
But in a big data world, a whole lot of folks know a whole lot about you. Your doctor appointments, specialists, internet searches, prescriptions. Beyond healthcare, in the world of big data, we leave behind an extraordinary trail of digital exhaust through toll booths, pharmacies, supermarkets, airline loyalty cards, Facebook, Twitter, blogs, Yelp, and TripAdvisor reviews, not to mention credit card and loyalty programs. Those who are interested can then easily begin to infer your lifestyle and with this lifestyle profile, make a whole lot of statistically accurate predictions about your health and habits. Company after company wants to obtain, interpret, and use your data and help you shape your future. Determining which companies we trust with what information is going to cause an interesting debate. We can now know so much about individuals, down to the molecular level, and we can know so much about their families, that anonymity is getting close to impossible. The limits we place on the use of this data, even if supposedly anonymized, will ebb and flow. So far, Europe seems far more concerned about protecting the individual's information and reputation than does the United States. Recent directives in the EU, such as the right to erase part of your past life from search engines, tip the scale toward individual choice and away from corporations. And then there are governments. So far, many governments default advice when faced with the question of how you should handle any personal health care or genetics data. Trust almost no one, just us bureaucrats. Strict HIPAA compliance laws can cost anyone who releases personalized medical information to unauthorized parties up to $50,000 per incident, plus criminal penalties. These restrictions make it very hard for patients themselves, never mind researchers, to access and share their own medical records. The default answer and standard is no sharing. But such a broad policy can stigmatize many diseases, be very costly for society as a whole, and harm individual patients. Taking the extreme opposite position on privacy vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. government, Jamie Haywood reminds many people of the Tasmanian Devil cartoon, a perpetual tornado of movement, great ingenuity, occasional destruction, and enormous creativity. He described himself as a serious engineer, a nerd, in fact, before his brother was diagnosed with ALS. As of that day, Jamie changed his life's focus and mission. He would tear down the whole of the medical establishment to help find a cure. While learning all the facts about ALS, Jamie also took on medical secrecy. In his view, the only rational way to combat a deadly disease with few answers is to share everything with everyone. Your bowels were really loose after you took Medicine X? Don't just tell me. Don't just tell your doctor. Tell everyone. Share it with the entire world. Create very large databases of information from hundreds of thousands of patients containing every last detail of their lives so that every variable, each step in a disease process, can be teased out.
In a sense, Jamie and the team at Patients Like Me are emulating one of the single most successful ongoing clinical studies in the world, the Framingham Heart Study. In 1948, doctors recruited 5,209 people and began recording every aspect of their lives they could think of, including diet, exercise, stress, blood work, and family history. They continued to do so every two years, from 1948 through the present. In 1971, they added a further 5,124 patients, primarily the kids and spouses of the original group. In 2003, they included grandchildren. Consistency and scale led to remarkable discoveries on disease causation and risk factors, tying cigarette smoking to heart disease, 1960, high cholesterol and blood pressure to heart disease, 1961, high blood pressure to stroke, 1970, the benefits of HDL cholesterol, and more. But there's one big difference between Jamie's Patients Like Me database and the Framingham research. Jamie asked everyone to voluntarily provide the many intimate details of their life and health, not just to researchers, but also openly to each other and even the world, often with their real names. To date, 250,000 people, principally those with a neurological disease, have agreed to have any researcher or other patient contact them, ask them questions, or share with them. In addition to information on disease progression and clinical trials, the data includes questions like, how do you feel? What is your quality of life? What really helps you feel better? How much sex do you have? All the questions a modern doctor rarely has the time to ask, much less collate and address, but that are essential to researchers and can help patients in real time. Not everyone wants to share all of their teenage or adult peccadilloes with everyone else due to embarrassment or fear that if they share, they may lose a job or their insurance. But keeping all data in the dark, with only the government to oversee, protect, and determine exactly who sees what and when, may not be the best answer. As we accumulate masses of data far and wide, patterns emerge. Harvard bioinformatician Isaac Kohana ran a retrospective patient study that correlated the use of a particular drug to a much higher incidence of heart attacks. Soon, the drug was off the market, not because of an FDA review, but because the transparency and public accountability brought about by Kahana's study forced action. Many lives were saved by transparency. Having huge companies know what the government knows, but promising to keep it all confidential, while simultaneously putting the huge databases of information to work for their own purposes, may not be the best answer either. In the end, the imperfect but perhaps least costly answer may be to accept less and less privacy. For Jamie, openness is more democratic. As databases grow, even if we wish to keep total privacy, it will be harder and harder to do so as our relatives and neighbors release digital exhaust or genetic test results. 
disease after disease that was rarely mentioned in polite company, is already a topic of everyday discussion thanks to brave leadership by people like Betty Ford, substance abuse, Kitty Dukakis, depression, and Magic Johnson, AIDS. We are all better off because the unmentionable is now public and far more transparent. Shame and disease are not words that belong together. Transparency, accountability, and evidence. A willingness to say, yes, I did this or decided that, in public, may become a better standard for priests, patients, bureaucrats, entrepreneurs, and corporate types alike. We need more and broader discussion, not more privacy and fewer people making decisions. The shy and embarrassed should be afforded protection, but establishing robust, large, parallel, opt-in, open data sets will demystify and destigmatize. In the end, we need to consider more ways to trust ourselves and our communities. The Future of Life Throughout this book, we have tried to take some really complex science and provide enough to tell the story, but not make it unintelligible. Doubtless, there will be folks who will say we should have qualified X more, explained Y better, noted Z was just one study, or that a particular article we cited has been superseded. We could have added a lot more supporting evidence and detailed a lot of the emerging science with further caveats and qualifiers. We are just at the first stages of discovery in how life code works, how it can be deployed. A lot will change. But here is what is not going to change soon. Humans increasingly tip the balance of evolution away from what nature would dictate and toward what we want and decide. As long as humans are alive, unnatural selection and non-random mutation are here to stay. The quiver of instruments we have created to redesign and drive fast evolution is so powerful, effective, and dominant that we are not going to give them up or even curb them much. Any country that does so on a large scale risks losing races in healthcare, longevity, agriculture, industrial production, education, information storage, and many other fields. It would be the equivalent of a nation suddenly giving up all computers and electronics and going back to pen and paper. This does not mean that for specific moral, religious, or political reasons, particular technologies won't be banned or limited in some countries. We will continue evolving bacteria, plants, animals, and ourselves to our particular desires. So now is the time to ask, having put ourselves in charge of our own evolution and that of other species, what will we choose to do with this extraordinary power?